0: The great French mathematician Blaise Pascal said, Man's greatest trouble is that he cannot sit in quiet for one hour in a room on his own. If only Pascal could see us today. We cannot sit for two minutes without reaching for our phone. There's a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon that I love which shows a picture of a family sitting in a semicircle in a living room staring at a blank wall and uh, underneath there's this caption, What Families Did Before TV. Well, you could almost draw a cartoon today, a cartoon today with people sitting next to each other staring at their empty hands with the caption, what we did before cell phones. Of course, uh, technology gives wonderful new opportunities for the gospel that we seize in all sorts of ways, as well as new ways we can amuse ourselves to death, as Neil Postman put it. But what stays the same is that we're shaped, you and I, by how, by how we think about ourselves. And formulating that ide- identity requires time and undistracted reflection. Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, according to the Bible, a holy and therefore joyful life is based on considering ourselves in Christ. Listen to how Paul describes the right way to form a self-identity in Romans 6, verses 8 to 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Paul is saying this, consider yourself as God considers you in Christ. That's the message, consider yourself as God considers you in Christ. And this morning I'm going to briefly set in context uh, in this letter to the Romans, then describe how Paul here is telling us to form this core Christian identity and then end by providing some tools to put this message into practice. It's all of paramount importance. Rabbi Zacharias said this, one of the greatest failures of our generation is not living out the biblical precepts which we so clearly articulate. So, in context... Paul's majestic letter to the Romans has established what Paul calls the gospel of God, as received through the obedience of faith, to credit to us Christ's righteousness. And last week we saw how a Christian is therefore a crucified one, cross-shaped in lifestyle. But as uh, Puritan Samuel Rutherford said, Christ's cross is such a burden as sails are to a ship or wings to a bird. And so this week Paul focuses more on the resurrection. And he has here three resurrection identity markers by which he calls us to identify ourselves. The first identity marker is future faith, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him. So, if someone has died with Christ, then that person now focuses their present active faith on their future life with Christ. If someone has turned from their sins put their trust in Christ's death for them, died to their old way of life, then that person now focuses their present faith on the future. And that future life with Christ is not also just some distant horizon, pie in the sky when you die. That life invades this present reality through the avenue of a Christian's conscious Present faith. Paul has this way of thinking. A regenerate, born again Christian is relocated to a whole new resurrection realm in Christ. And Paul is saying, focus your faith on that reality. We believe that we also live with. Keffa Sempangi recalls how, as a pastor during the Amin years in Uganda, a hired assassin confronted him with a commission to kill him. You can read about it in his book, Reign of Terror, Reign of Love. There he was, face to face with a man paid to kill him. In that moment, God gave the pastor Keffa the peace and love to pray for his assassin. Well, the assassin never come across that response to his duties of dispatching people to meet their maker. And he found he couldn't kill the pastor now. Sometime later, Keffer records how, having escaped the dangers of Uganda at that time, he now found himself suddenly and seriously short of money. And he was overcome with anxiety until he remembered the assassin. He reasoned like this. Can not the God who delivered me from the assassin's gun provide Cannot the God who delivered you from death and hell bring you out of that sin to a life of holiness? First identity marker, future faith or hope. If Christ has rescued you from death, then he will surely redeem you for life." The second identity marker is reasonable faith. Look at verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. Now it's important to understand that as one scholar explains, the beginning of this verse that starts, we know is a causative statement. That is, it's equivalent to because we know. So, Paul is given a reason here for this future faith based on what we can know. So, what do we know? Well, the fact of the resurrection. And Paul here describes that fact as an epoch defining change that has occurred because of two things. Christ being raised from the dead will never die again, and death no longer has dominion over him. So Christ's resurrection, Paul is saying, is not the same as Lazarus' temporary reemergence from the grave. Christ's resurrection is of a completely different kind. Christ was not merely revived for a season. He was resurrected no more to die. His life is under no possible threat from the mortal power of death's dominion and control. This Christ is raised not merely as a remarkable, even remarkably miraculous exception to an otherwise general rule, No, this Christ is raised to break the reign of death for it never, ever to return over him. I like the story of the reporter who interviewed a man on his 100th birthday. The centurion was asked what he was most proud about in his life. And uh, the ancient marina replied, I don't have an enemy in the world. <laughs> wow, <laughs> the reporter thought. Here's going to be profound wisdom for the ages, scribbling notes down on his, on his tablet. Yep, carried on the curmudgeonly survivor. I've outlived every last one of them. <laughs> Christ out loved death. He broke its power. Now, some people today say that Christian faith is a fairy tale. I have never yet found anyone who can explain to me how one small band of peasants from a far-flung corner of an ancient empire without aggression, violence, or manipulation turned the whole world upside down by preaching Christ is risen. Other than that... He is. Now, our identity as Christians is not wish fulfillment. Now our hope, our future faith is a reasonable faith. The third identity marker here is personal faith. Look at verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, we often say, don't we, that Christ died for sin. That is, uh, he died to pay for the penalty uh, of uh, sin that we sinners deserved. But what does it mean here that Christ died to sin? Indeed, Paul has already said in verse 2 earlier that Christians also died to sin. And some then think that as Paul cannot mean exactly the same in both places, otherwise he'd be saying that Christ somehow needed to stop sinning. Therefore, in verse 10, he must just mean that Christ died for sinners, but he phrases it in this unusual way. Now, that's a perfectly acceptable interpretation. The difficulty with it, others point out though, is that Paul also, later in the same verse here, uses this same phrase to say that Christ lives to God. So, it seems to be a deliberate way of talking on the part of Paul, they would say, to point out something specific about Christ's death and resurrection that otherwise we might miss. And this group of interpreters then would say that by Christ died to sin and that he lives to God, Paul means Christ's headship role. That is that when he died, he died to or defeated sin's rule. And when he rose again, he rose to or embraced resurrection life. You can trace some of this use of terminology all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, the death that Christ died to sin, defeating its rule, they would say, this group of interpreters. Now, whichever of those two interpretations you choose, the meat of this verse is uh, right in the middle, when Paul says here, once for all. So then, this cross this death and resurrection is not just a historical event, not just an intellectual proposition. It marks our identity now. It is a personal faith. It's a little bit like those first footprints on the moon. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Similarly, Christ's death was once for all. No need for repeated sacrifice. No need for another atonement. All finally finished. One time for all people who trust in Christ. So we have here in Paul's teaching a past faith, the, the death to self that we considered last week when we looked at the cross. Then there are here these three resurrection identity markers, future faith or hope. Christians are not Chicken littles going around saying the sky is about to fall down. We are people of the future. The future is our identity. Then there is reasonable faith. Christians are not ostriches with their head in the sand, ignoring modern reason. We are people of the truth. The truth is our identity. The resurrection occurred. And then there is personal faith. Christians are not merely like moviegoers, entertained by an enthusiasm for Christian culture. We are people of personal commitment. Christ is our identity. Before we consider Paul's call to make that Christ our identity in verse 11, I want to read to you the beginning of. The editorial from the most recent edition of the Journal of the Evangelical Society. The editor is Andreas Kostenberger, and his brief paragraph goes like this The rapid erosion in recent years of the biblical understanding of marriage and gender identity in the West has been alarming. Believers are starkly confronted with the realization that living out God's plan for marriage in today's world is increasingly countercultural. Western civilization, he writes, is in a steep moral decline. Parallels with ancient Roman culture and Paul's words in his letter to the Romans are palpable. Now, I read that so that you may know that my commitment to preach Paul's letter to the Romans is not for personal antiquarian interests, but because I believe that this letter, this word of God, is the answer to our postmodern crisis today. And we must in particular here this day regain an identity that is shaped by Christ. It must be future hope, reasonable truth, and personal commitment morally and spiritually. Well then, listen now to how Paul calls us to do just that, to make Christ our identity. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, this verb consider is in the present imperative, which means we could paraphrase like this. You must keep on considering. Paul is describing an attitude to the self that must be imperative, fostered by constant, deliberate, conscious thought, present. Active, imperative, ongoing. Christian must rightly consider themselves today, tomorrow, now, and in five minutes' time. Present imperative of thought about the self. And this verb consider also reflects the imputation or reckoning of Christ's righteousness, which Paul has earlier taught in Romans. It's the same root word. Paul is saying... That as Christ's righteousness is reckoned to us or credited to us by faith, so now a Christian is to reckon what God has reckoned, or consider true of themselves what God says is true of them. A Christian's identity is to be shaped by the imputation of Christ's righteousness in his death and in his resurrection. Paul is saying it is imperative that a Christian win the battle of the mind, sell themselves on the truth about themselves in Christ. Keep on considering themselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Identify themselves fully, finally, completely as a Christ One. Not a fill in the blank subcategory identity marker plus a Christian. But simply, clearly, only, totally, Christ's. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the trouble with Christians is they listen too much to themselves when they should be talking to themselves. (laughs) But this here is more than merely preaching the gospel to yourselves. This is identifying yourself as Christ's. This is seeing your final identity not as a businessman, not as a doctor, not as an author, not as a mother, not as a father, not as a preacher, not as a missionary, not as a heterosexual, not as a homosexual, not as a black person, not as a white person, not as a Native American, not as an inheritor of the Mayflower, not as an intellectual, not as an ENTP on the Myers-Briggs chart. Not as an athlete, but ultimately and simply as Christ's. Paul has this message here, to actually grow in holy Christ-likeness, Christians must first constantly persuade themselves by the internal conversation of their own minds that what God says is true of them in Christ is true of them. or consider yourself as God considers you in Christ. Some of us will know the story of Jacob, who was born grasping onto the heel of his brother Esau. Later he deceived his brother, fled, was himself deceived, <laughs> returned, frightened as to what kind of reception his brother Esau would give him. One night he wrestled with God. and After that extraordinary tussle, His name was changed. No longer supplanter, he was Israel. Defined now in his core identity by the triumphant God of the universe. Perhaps you need to wrestle with God this week. Is your core identity Christ's? Or is being a Christ follower subordinate to other even legitimate passions? You can always tell by a simple test. When the Bible tells you to do something that is not what you want to do, do you do what you want or what the Bible tells you to do? Is your identity primarily that of belonging to Christ, or is it secondarily belonging to Christ, as long as that identity does not conflict with your primary identity, which is being wealthy, or intellectual, or respected? Followers of Christ must be followers of Christ. A follower of Christ is not someone who follows Christ, as long as that does not stop them following something else. That person is not a follower of Christ. They're a follower of that other thing in the same way that a person who follows a man down a street and then goes in a different direction to that man when they come to a crossroads is not ultimately following that other man. What counts is who you are. Do you consider yourself as primarily dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus? Is, in other words, your primary identity His? It's so hard, isn't it, for us to be honest with ourselves about this core identity. There were two colleagues at a restaurant table. They decided to share dessert Chocolate mousse appeared and one of the two women cut it not in half but two-thirds for herself and a third for the other. The one with only the third was a little bit annoyed. What are you doing, she asked. Well, what would you have done, the colleague replied. Well, I would have given two-thirds to you and kept only a third for myself. Well, what are you complaining about then, the other colleague said. That's what happened, isn't it? A third with Christ? Two-thirds? Or your whole identity as Christ's? There was a farmer who discovered a very high yield wheat but refused to share the seed with his neighbor. The next year, his crop actually did worse, and the year after that, worse still. He couldn't figure it out. Eventually, the farmer discovered that his prized corn was being pollinated by the inferior grade next door. His selfish refusal to share, to collaborate, impacted his own harvest. Your gifts are gifts to share generously with Christ's people, for your identity is as a Christ one. Not in my backyard is a phrase incommensurate with the Lord of the universe whose we are. Dr. King put it marvelously like this, failure of justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Perhaps your spiritual harvest is not what it could be because your selfish self is pollinating the high-grade yield seed of the word. The life of holiness begins in the life of the mind and it starts as we consider ourselves as God considers us in Christ. This Jesus, this Jesus whose sweet love is more compelling than nectar to bees, sunlight after night. Truth after lies. So now, would you then use this tool to identify yourself more completely as Christ this week? First, refuse lies. You may be just starting to consider the claims of Christ. Would you take seriously the truth of His resurrection? You may be more than familiar with the claims of Christ. Would you take seriously the truth that His resurrection can give you fresh power this week to live life to the full? Would you refuse lies? Second, recall truth. Would you take my challenge for you this week, which is to read the Bible each morning for five minutes? Having read it, think about it. Having thought about it, ask God to help you believe its truth. Refuse lies. Recall truth. Third, reckon truth. Christ. If you are in Christ, then what is ultimately true about you is not what your parents said about you. Not what a personality test says about you. Not what your teachers say about you. Not what your boss says says about you, not even what you say about you. The ultimate truth is that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider that each day this week. Consider yourself as God considers you in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Lord, would you take... this truth and plant it deep within us to your great glory amen